Happy Friday. Welcome to the Vince Coakley Radio Program. Glad you are here. A lot of interesting things to talk about today. Well, how about a sampling? We'll talk about what's going on with the ongoing flood of migrants into the country, how much it's costing. You'll notice some of these stories I've mentioned earlier in the week and never got to. Hope to catch up on those things today. This price tag for one state is going to blow your mind. We have a little fun, too, on this migrant subject with Babylon B. They are so clever. (laughs) We will share a short piece from them. Yesterday, I think it's a weird coincidence. We had problems with AT&T. Their network is now restored, thank goodness. Homeland Security is looking into what happened there. Also, another healthcare company talking about a hack that disrupted pharmacy orders. Reports that pharmacies nationwide hit by cyber attacks. What was this about? We will talk about it and get some input from our favorite expert on cybersecurity. Also, we'll have a little fun next hour talking about one of my favorite dreams for the future. I don't have any intention of going anywhere, at least as far as I know. One of the things I'd love to see here is Major League Baseball. Wouldn't it be cool to actually have a team here? I mean, I... I'm not at all downplaying the significance of the Charlotte Knights. I'm glad they are here. I'm glad they're playing uptown. But a full-fledged Major League team, wouldn't that be awesome? Are we ready for this? We'll have that discussion as well during the course of the broadcast today. I want to begin with something I think is a very exciting development You know, one of the things that I think, I hope we're moving away from is the idea that if something significant is going to be done, it's going to have have to happen with government. We think of this in regard to the space program. So one of the things that I am thrilled to see is how private industry has taken the lead in the advancements in exploration in space. A private lander made the first U.S. touchdown on the moon in more than 50 years. Now, one little glitch in this, just a weak signal back until flight controllers scrambled to gain better contact. Despite this spotty communication, Intuitive Machines, the company that built and managed the craft, confirmed it landed upright. No additional details, including whether the lander had reached its intended destination near the moon's south pole. The company ended its live webcast soon after identifying a lone, weak signal from the lander. Hey, it's weak, but it's nonetheless a signal. The mission director, Tim Crane, reported as tension built in the company's Houston Control Center, what we can confirm without a doubt is our equipment is on the surface of the moon. The CEO, this was a nail-biter, but we're on the surface and we're transmitting. Welcome to the moon. Data finally starting to stream in, according to a company announcement two hours after touchdown. The landing put the U.S. back on the surface for the first time since NASA's famed Apollo moonwalkers. Folks, this is a long time coming. A long time coming. So this is a big deal. A lunar landing, a feat achieved by only five countries. Another U.S. company, Astrobotic Technology, gave it a shot last month but never made it to the moon. The lander crashed back to the Earth. Both companies are part of a NASA-supported program to kickstart the lunar economy. Bill Nelson, NASA administrator, tweeting out, Intuitive machines ace the landing of a lifetime. The final few hours before touchdown loaded with extra stress when the lander's 
laser navigation system failed, the company's flight control team had to press an experimental NASA NASA laser system into action with the lander taking an extra lap around the moon to allow time for the last minute switch. Isn't it amazing to be able to maneuver these things from way back here on Earth? Odysseus descended from a moon skimming orbit and guided itself toward the surface, aiming for relatively flat spots among all the cliffs and the craters near the South Pole. As the designated touchdown time came and went, controllers of the company's command center anxiously awaited a signal from the spacecraft 250,000 miles away. Do we have any concept of how far away this is? After close to 15 minutes, the company announced it had that weak signal from the lander. Launched last week, the six-footed carbon fiber and titanium lander, towering 14 feet, carried six experiments for NASA. The space agency gave the company $118 million to build and fly the lander, part of its effort to commercialize lunar deliveries ahead of the planned return of astronauts in a few years. Now, this company is carrying this out. It's the latest in a series of landing attempts by countries and private outfits looking to explore the moon and, if possible, capitalize on it. Japan scored a lunar landing last month, joining earlier triumphs by Russia, U.S., China, and India. The U.S. bowed out of the lunar landscape in 1972 after NASA's Apollo program put 12 astronauts on the surface. We mentioned Astrobotic of Pittsburgh gave it a shot last month, derailed by a fuel leak, resulted in the lander plunging back through Earth's atmosphere and burning up. Not a pleasant ending there. Intuitive Machines target was 186 miles shy of the South Pole, around 80 degrees latitude and closer to the pole than any other spacecraft has come. That site's relatively flat, but surrounded by boulders, hills, cliffs, and craters that could hold frozen water. That's a big part of the allure. The landing program to pick in real time the safest spot in the so-called Malapert A crater. Besides NASA's tech and navigation experiments, Intuitive Machines sold space on the lander to Columbia Sportswear to fly its newest insulating jacket fabric. Sculptor Jeff Coons for 125 mini-moon figurines and Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University for a set of cameras to capture pictures of the descending lander. So... I'm glad to see, after 50 years, this development, and again, to see a private enterprise like this, and, and honestly, considering all the billions of dollars wasted by our federal government subsidizing things where we have no business, I think I can live with $118 million. Can you? I'm cool with that. Still to come in the broadcast. Is this a picture of the work week of the future? A cool development happening across the pond. We'll talk about what they've experimented with and what seems to be working. We're going to talk about the weird technology issues yesterday. The outage with AT&T, the issue with pharmacies having difficulty making connection we will have a conversation about what could be behind these particular issues let's talk about the work week it was interesting this morning i was just talking with a friend of mine just discussing the work week and he brought up henry ford because there's an important history here i'll just mention a couple of items to you the U.S. government started tracking working hours way back in 1890. Go to, get a load of this. It, when you, 
I just cannot imagine this, especially now. Of course, I'm getting old. I'll acknowledge that. Getting. When the U.S. government started tracking hours in 1890, the average full-time manufacturing employee clocked 100 hours a week. Oh, my goodness. I mean, think about it. 100 hours a week. Can you imagine putting in that many hours a week? I certainly can't. One hundred hours. So, it was quite a development, a positive development, to have Henry Ford come along and become one of the first employers to adopt a five-day, 40-hour work week at his Ford Motor Company plants back in 1926. To go from 100 to 40? Ah, yeah. I'm all for that. (laughs) So, eight hours a day, five days a week. Think about this. This was 1926. This was nearly 100 years ago. Do you think it's time to take another look at this? Do you think it's time to re-examine with all the technological advances that we have that have streamlined so many things? I think it's time to take a look at this. Well, in the United Kingdom, they have. I wonder if such a study is underway here in the United States of America. Get a load of this. CNBC reports most UK firms stick with a four-day week, four-day working week after taking part in the world's biggest trial. Of the 61 companies that took part in a six-month, four-day working week pilot in 2022, at least 54, 89% of these companies said the policy was still in place. 31 firms, 51% said they permanently switched to a shorter working week. The companies involved were invited to take part in a follow-up study one year on from the world's biggest trial of a shorter working week to date. Juliet Shore, the report's author and a professor of sociology at Boston College, described the one-year results as excellent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so the findings show the positive effects of shorter working hours were real and long-lasting. Most companies involved in this have made the policy permanent. This is really good. Permanent. These results were published by a think tank called Autonomy. showed that all the consulted project managers and CEOs said a four-day week had a positive impact on their organization, with more than half describing the impact as very positive. The vast majority, 82% of surveyed companies reported positive impacts on staff well-being. 50% saw positive effects on reducing staff turnover. Nearly a third said the policy had noticeably improved recruitment. This is really good. Physical and mental health, work-life balance, significantly better than at six months. Burnout and life satisfaction improvements held steady. Job satisfaction and sleep problems nudged down a bit. The bulk of the original improvement remains. Pretty good stuff, huh? The report found, however, that staff in firms with the additional day off was only weekly guaranteed or provided on the condition of meeting certain targets had some concerns. For example, four-day working week models that were highly conditional resulted in some staff reporting added stress to meet deadlines, resentment against others, and feelings of inequity between employees based on the nature of their role. So in other words, if you hold this out like a carrot and stick approach and say, well, if you do this, you get a four-day work week, you know, that becomes stressful. Give it to people. See, I, this is kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? 
because there are certain people. I, I think this is a perfect example, dare I say it, of God's grace. I think people think, for instance, in the spiritual realm, if God is forgiving people, loving people, showing mercy, oh, they're going to abuse that. This is really what we're talking about here, isn't it? Well, we better make it conditional. Make them jump through a few hoops. And here, this study is showing, no, give it to them. And don't put any conditions attached to it. Look what happens. I think this is pretty awesome. Quite cool. The report added, less committed forms of the four-day Weak policy also left staff less able to plan activities on their day off. So you, you put this conditional, well, you may have the day off, you may not. That's not good. The report said employees tended to use their day off for caring responsibilities, hobbies, and chores, with staff keen to prioritize quality time for the weekend. Will Strong, who is the director of research at Autonomy, said in a statement, one year on from the results of UK's four-day week pilot, virtually every company we've spoken to has decided to stick with a four-day week. The improvements in physical and mental health, work-life balance, general life satisfaction, as well as the reductions in burnout found at the end of the trial have all been maintained one year on. Are you listening, corporate America? It's time to take a look at this. Four-day work week. I think this was discussed more years ago, and it seems to have kind of faded away from discussion in recent years. But it looks like it's probably time to have this discussion again. What do you think? So yesterday, we had this outage that affected people all across the country. Well, a couple of outages. We had phone issues, and we also had pharmacy issues. Is there a connection? We'll talk with our favorite expert on the subject as we continue the broadcast. We're going to talk about the weird technology issues yesterday, the outage with AT&T, the issue with pharmacies having difficulty making connection. We will have a conversation about what could be behind these particular issues. Let's talk about the work week. It was interesting this morning. I was just talking with a friend of mine, just discussing the work week, and he brought up Henry Ford. Because there's an important history here, I'll just mention a couple of items to you. The U.S. government started tracking working hours way back in 1890. Go get a load of this. It, when you, I just cannot imagine this, especially now. Of course, I'm getting old. I'll acknowledge that. Getting. When the U.S. government started tracking hours in 1890, the average full-time manufacturing employee clocked 100 hours a week. Oh my goodness! No, I mean, thanks. think about it. 100 hours a week. Can you imagine putting in that many hours a week? I certainly can't. One hundred hours. So it was quite a development, a positive development. To have Henry Ford come along and become one of the first employers to adopt a five-day, 40-hour work week at his Ford Motor Company plants back in 1926. To go from 100 to 40? Ah, uh, yeah. I'm all for that. <laughs> so, eight hours a day, five days a week. Think about this. This was 1926. This was nearly 100 years ago. Do you think it's time to take another look at this? Do you think it's time to re-examine with all the technological advances that we have that have streamlined so many 
things. I think it's time to take a look at this. Well, in the United Kingdom, they have. I wonder if such a study is underway here in the United States of America. Get a load of this. CNBC reports most UK firms stick with a four-day week, four-day working week, after taking part in the world's biggest trial. Of the 61 companies that took part in a six-month, four-day working week pilot in 2022, at least 54, 89% of these companies said the policy was still in place. 31 firms, 51% said they permanently switched to a shorter working week. The companies involved were invited to take part in a follow-up study one year on from the world's biggest trial of a shorter working week to date. Juliet Shore, the report's author and a professor of sociology at Boston College, described the one-year results as excellent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so the findings show the positive effects of shorter working hours were real and long-lasting. Most companies involved in this have made the policy permanent. This is really good. Permanent. These results were published by a think tank called Autonomy. showed that all the consulted project managers and CEOs said a four-day week had a positive impact on their organization, with more than half describing the impact as very positive. The vast majority, 82% of surveyed companies, reported positive impacts on staff well-being. 50% saw positive effects on reducing staff turnover. Nearly a third said the policy had noticeably improved recruitment. This is really good. Physical and mental health, work-life balance, significantly better than at six months. Burnout and life satisfaction improvements held steady. Job satisfaction and sleep problems nudged down a bit. The bulk of the original improvement remains pretty good stuff huh the report found however that staff in firms with the additional day off was only weekly guaranteed or provided on the condition of meeting certain targets had some concerns for example four-day working week models that were highly conditional resulted in some staff reporting added stress to meet deadlines, resentment against others, and feelings of inequity between employees based on the nature of their role. So in other words, if you hold this out like a carrot-and-stick approach and say, well, if you do this, you get a four-day work week, you know, that becomes stressful. Give it to people. See, I, this is kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Because there are certain people. I, I think this is a perfect example, dare I say it, of God's grace. I think people think, for instance, in the spiritual realm, if God is forgiving people, loving people, showing mercy, oh, they're going to abuse that. This is really what we're talking about here, isn't it? Well, we better make it conditional. Make them jump through a few hoops. And here, this study is showing, no, give it to them. And don't put any conditions attached to it. Look what happens. I think this is pretty awesome. Quite cool. The report added, less committed forms of the four-day week policy also left staff less able to plan activities on their day off. So you, you put this conditional, well, you may have the day off, you may not. That's not good. The report said employees tended to use their day off for caring responsibilities, hobbies, and chores, with staff keen to prioritize quality time for the weekend. Will Strange, who is the director of research at Autonomy, said in a statement, one year on from the results of UK's four-day week pilot, virtually every company we've spoken to has decided to stick with a four-day week. The improvements in physical and mental health, work-life balance, general life satisfaction, as well as the reductions in burnout found at the end of the trial have all been maintained one year on. Are you listening, corporate America? It's time to take a look at this. 
four-day work week. I think this was discussed more years ago, and it seems to have kind of faded away from discussion in recent years. But it looks like it's probably time to have this discussion again. What do you think? So yesterday, we had this outage that affected people all across the country. Well, a couple of outages. We had phone issues, and we also had pharmacy issues. Is there a connection? We'll talk with our favorite expert on the subject as we continue the broadcast. Back on the Vince Coakley radio program. And if you've paid attention at all to news, you know, yesterday was quite an interesting day as it relates to technology. We'll talk about what happened and get some insight as to why coming up in just a bit. First, I want to encourage you to join Breaking Brett Jensen, the first WBT Cigar Club meetup of 2024. It's coming up next Thursday, February 29th, 6 to 9 p.m. at the Vintage Whiskey and Cigar Bar in Gastonia. Watch Brett host Breaking with Brett Jensen live, browse premium cigar brands like Cohiba, and enjoy giveaways and specials Courtesy of the Vintage, it's the WBT Cigar Club, Thursday, February 29th, the Vintage Whiskey and Cigar Bar in Gastonia. Seating is limited, so lock in your reservation today. Email cigar at wbt.com for reservations. So what did we have? What did we have yesterday? Wireless carrier AT&T says cellular service has been restored to thousands of customers who were without service for more than 10 hours. The outage included thousands of customers right here in North Carolina. 63,000 AT&T customers reported outages, according to downdetector.com. That's a digital service tracking site, a tracking site that provides data on self-reported outages. Combined 5,100 customers from Verizon, T-Mobile also reporting outages. Both those companies released statements saying they were not affected. And we also had this. Bloomberg reporting a cyber attack against the division of United Health Group caused a nationwide outage of a computer network used to transmit data between healthcare providers and insurance companies, rendering some pharmacies unable to process prescriptions. That's not a good thing. Drudge reporting pharmacies nationwide hit by cyber attacks. State actor to blame prescriptions on hold. Did this affect you at all? yesterday and is there a relationship between these two issues the phone and the issue with pharmacies phone and pharmacy is there a connection well to get some answers on this the first person I reach out to is this guy who's an internationally recognized expert on cybersecurity strategy and cyber terrorism his name is Morgan Wright and he is back with us again Good morning, Morgan Wright. How are you today? Very good, sir. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. So we had these two issues, and it's kind of interesting. They happen on the same day. Is there a connection? Well, for the conspiracy theorists out there, I I hate to burst your bubble. Actually, as of last, and this is something I talked about with some other folks yesterday, too, some other interviews. I said, this has the hallmarks basically of a configuration error. We've seen this happen with Amazon Web Services. We've seen it happen with big folks. You do a change, it has an unintended consequence, and then it it proliferates through the network. So uh, actually last night at about uh, 8 p.m. Eastern time, uh, AT&T actually put out a message that said, based on our initial review, we believe today's outage was caused by the application and execution of an incorrect process. So it's not a cyber attack. So what they'll be doing is doing what's called root cause analysis. They'll go back and figure out, okay, what was the change, what was applied, and why was it allowed to, you know, proliferate, you know, expand through the network, create these cascading things. So, but here's the thing, though, Vince, even though it was a configuration error, you know, maybe a mistake, our adversaries, like the Chinas, the Russias, the North Koreas, the Irans of the world, they're looking to see what's the impact that it had. How did we react to that as a society? How did we, how did, what kind of services did it affect this, because this, goes into part of their planning. It's called intelligence preparation of the battlefield. They can now look at this with no cost. They didn't have to do the attack to see 
what are the consequences of an attack like that. So, unfortunately, it also gave some uh, intelligence to our adversaries. What are our vulnerabilities? They've seen this without having to do a single thing. So yep, that, they, they, without firing a shot, they were able to see, okay, uh, if we took out communications network, what would it affect? Who would it affect? By the way, the reason that you saw, like, people thought, well, Verizon's down, T-Mobile's down. No, those were people trying to contact people on the AT&T network. They, they just thought it was down. The other thing I wanted to be clear about is no 911 center went down anywhere. Uh, the fact that they could not, if you were on an AT&T network at the time, call into 911 doesn't mean 911 was down. So, um you saw many of those statements come out from many of the 911 centers uh, around the United States saying, hey, we're not affected, we're still up and running, but if you're on an AT&T line, you need to either get to a, a landline, or a lot of people don't realize this, but the reason you can make calls even if one carrier's network is down is because carriers talk to each other. They have to to pass calls along. So sometimes there's the opportunity if you need to make a call and your primary network is down, you're actually able to use another network for the purposes of 911. Well, let's talk about the pharmacy issue. Uh, this is something totally different where they're actually acknowledging, hey, this was some sort of security issue. What happened here? You know, when you first hear about it, whenever you hear the language that like, you know, we've detected event, we're taking things offline, sometimes you think, okay, that's kind of the hallmark of a ransomware attack. That's what happened with MGM. That's, you know, what happened with uh, Colonial Pipeline. But for them to come out and say it was a state actor tells me a couple of things. One is they found, we don't know if it's ransomware yet, but remember North Korea, a state actor, used the WannaCry ransomware. They had a variant of it. Uh, so it's not above a state actor to use that. My guess is it's probably going to be China. Why? Because China has gotten into companies like Anthem Healthcare, you know, 80 million records. They've gotten into United, um, Marriott, you know, all of these different things. So my guess is this is part of their collection efforts that they use for targeting, because what does a prescription tell you? A prescription informs you as to somebody's medical condition. If you're taking a certain kind of medication, you can infer from that that they have a certain kind of uh, disease or a certain kind of issue they're dealing with. So, they, you know, the Chinese collect everything. So I'm, I don't know it's China yet, but I'm saying, but if it's not ransomware, potentially a state actor, if it's a collection effort or a, a data breach, it's most likely going to be them collecting information the way they did with the Office of Personnel Management, uh, you know, Anthem Healthcare, you know, you name it, on and on. They've gotten they've gotten into some big breaches. So the, the uh, other question this comes down to for both of these areas, is there anything that, that you or I as consumers, uh, we can do about either one of these issues? Or are we pretty much at the mercy of these uh, giant networks, whether they are the phone networks or whether they are providing some sort of service for us? You know, there's a couple things. Just it's one thing is one of the things is basic things is like, look, if something were to happen to power water, you know, don't don't freak out, folks. But, I, you know, I don't want to people think, hey, this is guys a prepper. No, just basically be able to live subsist for two weeks, because that's about the time it takes for the federal government to roll out, you know, full fledged disaster response FEMA to come into the area. The other thing is, too, is like e even if you're in a home, um, if you've got an iPhone and I've got one, I use Wi-Fi calling, too. So I don't even if the cell network's down, I can get over my wireless and use the data side of a network, you know, my own network to make inbound and outbound calls. So even if that's down. So, yeah, there's not much you can do other than to be prepared for something. But on the pharmacy side, that's a tougher one, too, because all I tell people is that, look, be very careful with the information you disclose. Always ask, is this information required for you to process this from a privacy standpoint? If you get no federal fund, if you, don't, if you as the uh, consumer get no federal dollars, you're not on a government program, you're not required to disclose things like your Social Security number. So just be careful about the information and question them. Ask them, why do you need this information if I don't give it to you? Will you still den will you deny me benefits or deny me access? So, be a good steward, you know, good custodian of your own info. But at the end of the day, you know, things like this are just going to happen. As much as you can restrict that information being in the hands of an adversary, that's that's what we can do. Excellent inputs, as always, from our good friend Morgan Wright. Thanks a lot for joining us on the broadcast this morning, sir. You bet, Vince. As always, thanks, man. <laughs> A lot of conversation going on these days about illegal immigration, the cost of this. And let me reiterate what I've said before. 
It's, and it's kind of interesting to me that so many of the people who are so uh, prolific in their denunciation of America and its founding, who think America is so terrible, also think everybody ought to be able to come to America. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird. Why would you wish that upon people if you think America is so terrible? Nonetheless, we've got a steady stream of people coming into this country, not through the front door, but through, through the back door. And there's a price tag for this. Somebody's got to pay. And this is my position on this. Every person who comes into this country ought to come through the front door. And I think coming through illegally ought to be a disqualification for staying in America. That's what I believe. I also believe the people who support sanctuary cities, sanctuary states, whatever, ought to voluntarily pay for this. I'm not talking about government officials using the taxpayer's money. I'm talking about out of your own pocket. See, that to me is the real sign of virtue. If you are willing to house these people yourself and get these people on their feet, good for you. But if you think it's the government's job, which means all of us, to pay for this, shame on you. I go back to the example of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, and I hear people talk, well, when do you, you know, be like the Good Samaritan? Well, the Good Samaritan, what did the Good Samaritan do? He took care of this person that he found out of his own treasury. He didn't go and sign this person up for government benefits. He took personal responsibility. If you're ready to do that, more power to you. Okay, having said that, Breitbart reports Massachusetts is spending $64 a day to feed each migrant. $64 a day. You know, I was thinking of this, you know, because I'm in the midst now of taking a closer look at my budget for the year and food costs. Part of it, I'm making a confession here, I've been kind of naughty and probably eat out too much. A lot of times I just don't feel like cooking. Even with some simple things that I can do, like using an air fryer and some creative ways to make some really good meals that sometimes are better than some of the stuff you'll find out at restaurants. Just saying. $64 a day. Think about it. Yeah, but do you spend $64 a day on food? I'm curious. $64 a day. Massachusetts on track to spend $1 billion by 2025. States paying out $16 for breakfast, $17 for lunch, $31 for every dinner every day. The state insists this is required to provide the free food due to its, are you ready for this? 1983 Sanctuary City Law. It was passed to deal with a far smaller number of homeless people in the state. However, the right to shelter law is not exactly being applied as written. The law also says those afforded shelter must be supplied with refrigerators and the capability to prepare food. Oh, this is interesting. Migrants are being given already made food, not the ability to prepare their own. Isn't this just like the government? You know, it, it reminds me of... I know it's been overused about the difference between giving somebody a fish or teaching somebody to fish. But this is exactly what we're dealing with here. One puts people on a path to independence, the other to dependency. And you know which one government bureaucrats love. They love the, the bureaucratic and dependency route. The state's currently housing and caring for about 20,000 migrants, according to the UK Daily Mail. 20,000. Mm hmm. When Democrat Governor Mara Healey was in Boston to discuss shutting down the community center in Roxbury, she insisted the state does not have a choice other than to shut down community centers and rent out hotels to house illegals. Seriously, folks, hotels. Residents are less resigned 
over that choice. Parents of children being dispossessed from one community center are furious over the moves by state and city officials who've taken their community center away from them. So in other words, what are they doing? They're prioritizing migrants over regular citizens. This is not a surprise. They keep doing this all the time. Before we go to break, I've got to share with you a really funny post from Babylon B. During a recent press conference, Mayor Eric Adams announced he will no longer tolerate migrant attacks against NYPD officers, warning further incidents would result in a downgrade in migrant living accommodations from luxurious five-star hotels to humble four-star establishments. We are sending a strong, clear message. We mean business, says Eric Adams sternly. If you mess with New York's finest, you're going to have a slightly less luxurious stay. You can kiss those swan-shaped folded bath towels and mints on your pillow goodbye. That's how seriously we take protecting our boys in blue. No more Mr. Nice Mayor. Gone are the days of hospitalizing local law enforcement by day and sleeping on 10,000 thread count Egyptian sheets by night. <laughs> Some have now criticized the mayor's new proposal, calling it a full-blown humanitarian crisis and a racist affront to migrant dignity. What's next? Taking away their brand new iPhones just because they torched a couple of cop cars? These migrants just want to feed their families and assault cops without repercussion. What's happened to this once great city? <laughs> Hour number two is straight ahead. Stay with us. And welcome to our number two Men's Coakley Radio program. I want to, uh, I guess, start off on a personal note here for Faith Focus Friday. I, I don't have anything. I was just reflecting on this during the break. I don't have anything profound that I'm going to share in terms of something that I've read or come across today. But really share more of a uh, just personal observation personal life experience, and also, I guess, kind of an exhortation to you for what it's worth. I think I've mentioned to you a number of times just how these past few years, it's been a very interesting season for me. And part of what I've been praying about and reflecting on in recent, um, I think, recent days, weeks, Actually, longer than that, but I, I think I've been more fervent in my prayers about this recently. It's just a desire to strengthen some spiritual connections. One of the things that I take very seriously, the biblical instruction about relationships. Bible talks about the importance of the the older men teaching the younger men and likewise with women. This is one of the challenges that I, that I think we see in the generational, what should be a generational transfer, not just of information. See, this is the key thing. It's not about information. It's ideally an impartation. There's a really big difference between the two. Now that we can have that conversation another time about, that difference but bottom line is impartation requires relationship and transparency in a way that I find and this is just my life experience over almost 60 years I find this is maybe this is wrong of me to think this I don't think most people are interested in this at all what I find is a lot of people who are very much They've got their lives, their families, their comfort zone, and there's not much interest beyond that of cultivating relationships, uh, what I would call above and below. When I say above, I'm talking about somebody more mature than me. And at the same time, me engaging people younger and less mature. There's, there's a important 
balance there. And one of my things I was just reflecting on during the breaks, just my desire to be more intentional about this, to really work this through to a conclusion. And I mentioned there are people that, this may sound really, it sounds kind of harsh and kind of scary, but I've sad for me, I found the people I refer to as kind of spiritual fathers in my life, I've literally watched uh, for different reasons. People uh, either move away or pass away. This is that season of life when this is happening, especially with people just getting older. Do you find this as you're getting older, just seeing more people in your circle, people you know, passing away? And, uh, and again, the, the depth and quality of some of the people that I've connected with in a significant way, they're rare people. At least that's, that's my perspective. Very rare people who are engaging in a way that is redemptive, that is transformative. So um, this is something I'm going to be even more intentional about. You know, I was just reflecting on what I always tell people. Put on your mask before helping others. You know, before I do more in terms of whatever engagement with people, serving, whatever, I need to make sure my mask is on. So, any case, I just thought I'd share that with you and also an exhortation. Where do you fit in, if, if you're a person who says, I'm a follower of Christ, What's going on in your life? Do you have people you engage who are more mature than you? Do you have people you engage that are younger, that you're helping to bring along? And sometimes it's it, in, in the ideal thing. I'm not talking about having meetings because that's I think this is where, you know, people talk about that scripture, you know, forsake not the assembling of yourselves. You know, you can assemble without really fellowshipping and engaging. I did that for many years, and I don't do that anymore because I one is one is genuine, the other is superficial. If there's no real connection relationship, we're kind of kidding ourselves. So both of those things have to go together. Yes, we gather, we connect on a regular basis. But it's got to be real. It's got to be transparency in relating to people. So I just ask this of you. Are you in that place where you've got both things going on? And this should always be, you know, when I think uh, on the receiving end of this, it's so important that we're in a place of humility and willing to receive really from everybody. You know, the perspective I try to engage with everybody is, to recognize the authority of Christ wherever it presents itself. Whether that person is more or less, I perceive that person to be more or less mature than myself, wherever the authority is presented, I need to submit to that. And that's the approach that I take. So, any case, I thought that might be helpful for some of you as you navigate this journey still to come on the broadcast yes there are other things to talk about i'm actually catching up with some of the things i intended to talk about during the course of the week there's a really cool item from my good friend steve dace and he shares something that i've said so many times he's he and I are so much on the same page in so many areas. I'm going to share a post of his that might very well spark some conversation. We will also talk about Major League Baseball. The idea of Major League Baseball in Charlotte. How many of you are really interested in this and think this is a good idea? Is Charlotte ready for this? Is this something that we can actually support?
back on the Vince Coakley radio program, 37 minutes after the hour of 11 o'clock. So we're talking about the prospect of Major League Baseball here in Charlotte. How would you feel about getting a Major League team here in the next few years, 704-570-1110, and what kind of conditions would you like to see? I explain where I am on this, which is I want to see somebody with deep pockets come in, not David Tepper, somebody who basically has money to throw away. Because if if they're in that place, um, I'm just being real here. Some of these folks can be stingy. But it's got to be somebody who is ready to spend money and is not looking for the city. Now, let me put a little condition on that. I could understand at the same time somebody who's coming in saying, you know, I want to see some type of investment from the city. To make sure that there's buy-in. Because if there's no buy-in, you're not going to have a team that's supported. And that's not a good thing. So I get it. But I want to make sure that person is going to bear the cost. They're going to get the profits. I want to see some investment. That's vital. Let's see the investment. So, let's talk about what Charlotte has going for it. Again, this is a story by ESPN. They mentioned a number of cities. I've gone through all of those. So now we come back to Charlotte. And here is what is said about our wonderful city. Because I think we do have a lot to offer here. Don't you agree? Charlotte's truest field boasts one of the best skyline views in minor league baseball. Could a major league team be in the city's future? Our city population, 874,579. Metro area population, 2,756,000. TV market rank, 21. If I remember correctly, when I first came to this city, when I was in TV, I think we were in the 30s in terms of TV markets. And we have moved our way up. I love one of the names here. Get a load of this. Most likely nickname, the Charlotte MLB Project lists the Charlotte Aviators as a possibility. You know how much I love aviation. Aviators. Most likely stadium location. No clear choice here. Truist Field, the home of the AAA Charlotte Knights, sits uptown with a view of the city skyline. Seats just over 10,000 fans. Not built to expand to major league capacity. This is something I never understood. Why not have some visionary perspective on this? But unfortunately, that didn't happen. No clear choice for location. The case for Charlotte. Charlotte metro area is bigger than some of the existing MLB teams, including Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and Cleveland. It's got that going for us. Charlotte already has proved it can support multiple professional sports teams with an NFL, NBA, and MLS team all located in the city. Does not include the Carolina Hurricanes playing way up in Raleigh. The Knights, the AAA affiliate of the White Sox, also play in the Queen City's downtown area, ranked 10th in all of the minors in attendance last season. It's not bad at all. What could stop it from landing a team? Location. Extremely unlikely MLB would add two teams in the same region when it expands. At the moment, Nashville appears to be at the front of the line to land a team. Nashville, really? The Music City has demonstrated more organized interest in bringing an MLB team that Charlotte has. So so the Charlotte MLB project, a movement to bring baseball to Charlotte, would have to kick in the high gear to close the gap. Got a lot of work to do. See, and this is where I ask the question, is the interest really there? Or is this just an academic conversation? Because at the end of the day, if the energy is not there, the interest, the potential fan support, then, you know, 
<laughs> we don't have much to work with, do we? Just putting that out there. Love to get your thoughts. Wow, pretty interesting. Keith writing in on email. He's the guy who supposedly agrees with me uh, 5% of the time. Hope all is well. We'll keep this short. I grew up across the street from Yankee Stadium. There is no way Charlotte can support a baseball team. Charlotte has so many transplants. No true fans. Too small. Tepper will move the Panthers. Guaranteed. Knight Stadium is awesome. Perfect for the size of the city. Okay. Interesting perspective there. I told you I was going to share something that I, I think is really uh, right on the money. I've said so many times that uh, Steve Dace just hits it right on the head so many times in expressing what I believe. And he's done that again with a post on X. And this can be read any number of ways, can be encouraging, can be discouraging. Hey, it's just reality. This is a representative republic. That means we're almost never getting leaders better than we are, except via provenance. So without that, there will be no successful mass primarying of rhinos in Wyoming or draining of swamps in D.C., until we're a people capable of stopping our daughters from getting mauled by dudes in athletics. <laughs> Goodness. Or even willing to attend a single school board meeting. Or willing to not indulge the woke agitprop at work. Or not go to churches that are willfully absent from the conflict. Or willing to be made uncomfortable and confront anything at all. Power flows up in a government by the consent of the governed, not down. Let me put this simpler and plainer. The crappy, corrupt, complacent, and cowardly leaders we have are a reflection of the people they represent. We aren't the victims, but the enablers. This has been my TED Talk. Hmm. What do you think about this perspective? from one Steve Dace, which is one of the reasons why I, I told you I find myself becoming more unplugged on the idea that we are going to see any significant change on the national stage. That's really where I am. I'm skeptical. Now, if somebody proves me wrong, I would absolutely welcome that. I'd love to see someone basically come along and do something that will change the nature of things. But I don't expect that to happen. We have also a developing story to tell you about. Just this morning, Joe Biden has announced 500 sanctions on Russia. For the Ukraine war and the Alexei Navalny death. The United States, according to UPI, marking the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with the announcement today of an unprecedented package of sanctions penalizing Moscow for its war, on con war of conquest on Ukraine and the death of the opposition leader Navalny. More than 500 sanctions target individuals implicated in Novani's death, as well as the country's financial, defense, and energy sectors, and entities on several continents that evade sanctions. Biden said the United States would also impose new export restrictions on nearly 100 entities for providing backdoor support for Russia's war machine. We're taking action to reduce... Russia's energy revenues. I've directed my team to strengthen support for civil society, independent media, 
and those who fight for democracy around the world. Biden said the measures would ensure President Vladimir Putin pays an even steeper price for his aggression abroad and repression at home. The Treasury Department, for its part, said it's joining with the State Department in the largest number of sanctions imposed since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, targeting three Russian government officials in connection with Alvani's death, as well as more than imposing additional costs for Russia's repression, human rights abuses, and aggression against Ukraine on more than four, 500 targets. The Department of Commerce also adding more than 90 companies to its entity list. Among the sanctioned Russian targets, the National Payment Card System Joint Stock Company, a state-owned operator of Russia's Mir National Payment System. So, some additional penalties announced against Russia. Will this make a difference? Will this cause them to change course on anything? Don't hold your breath. I think you know the people we're dealing with and the resolve that they are likely to show in the face of these efforts. All right, it's time for us to take a look at the day in history. Tommy, how are you today? Hello, I'm good. Happy Friday. Yes. Any special plans in store for the weekend? I actually am going to be at the uh, Charlotte FC season opener tomorrow night, so super excited about that. But uh, other than that, just kind of working on packing up the house to move. That's fun stuff. The move. Now, what kind of move are we looking at here? Uh, just to another house, literally right down the uh, street from one uh, my fiance and I live in now. But our lease is coming up, and we've had some problems with landlords, so turning a new leaf. Okay. New house. Well, I hope everything goes well, and I wish you well, because I just did the moving thing a couple months ago. No I don't fun. want to move for another century. Yeah, no fun. <laughs> I'm just being straightforward about that. Here is where we are in terms of a day in history. We begin in 1822. And this bean town was granted a charter to incorporate as a city. What was it? Bean town. Would that bean be town. Chicago or Boston? I don't Chicago's know. got the bean, but Boston's called. I'll say. I'll say. I'll say Chicago. Oh no! It's Boston. Wow! Really? Granted a charter to incorporate as a city. It's okay. That's deceptive because you always thought right. that would have been way, way before that. But hmm. it's all right. Marking Washington's birthday, this thing told for the last time. Uh, this is in Philadelphia. It makes a ringing sound. What is it? Would that be the uh, Liberty Bell? The Liberty Bell is absolutely correct. 1921. This is something that uh, delivered something that you take for granted every single day. In fact, you probably don't send anything out this way. But anyway, a plane that was uh, providing this service set a record from San Francisco to New York City. 33 hours... 20 minutes. Boy, that's uh, it's a long, long flight. <laughs> can you imagine what that can be done in now? Five hours or so? Yeah, I mean, Maybe. a flight that long today, if it took you 33 hours, you could probably come close to getting all the way back to where you started. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You could do that four or five times, actually. What was this uh, plane delivering? Mail? Mail. Airmail plane it was in 1921. 1945, U.S. Marines plant a flag atop Mount Suribachi. And what was the name that this is recognized as? Iwo Jima, correct. Iwo Jima, you better believe it. You've got it. 1954, Dr. Jonas Salk, known for this, bringing about a mass inoculation of children with this vaccine. Polio. Polio. You're absolutely correct. Um, I do not know the name of this these songs, so I'm not going to give this thing away. So let's go to uh, 1991. French forces unofficially kicked off this war by crossing into Iraq from Saudi Arabia. 
What, what war was this? You probably weren't even around. I was yes. not. Um, well, I'm not sure this, what the name of that war this is. This was the Gulf War. Uh, yes, I should have known that one. I gave you the out because I recognized it. Hey, you're a young kid. Well, a lot of the, pretty much everything <laughs> you've asked about is before I was born, so not much <laughs> thanks, of an excuse. Thanks for the reminder. I appreciate that, ma'am. But you did well, as usual. Well, we are out of time. It. Thanks very much for joining us today. Lord willing, we're back tomorrow. Tomorrow? What's wrong with me? Monday, the same time. Obviously, need a break. Enjoy your weekend. God bless you. Adios. Adios.